I'd like to open with prayer and, uh, and we'll get into it. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, there were many that went before us who have walked in your spirit and wrestled with the world and the flesh and you encouraged them along the way through your apostles and teachers and I just pray Lord that this morning we would be encouraged and built up that there would be greater unity that your name would be lifted up as we reflect on your word and these things that we would take them to heart and and weigh them seriously and um, with love and care for our brothers and sisters in Jesus name amen so Paul was in Corinth for approximately a year and a half it says in Acts 18 certainly long enough for him to walk with the group to create um, a culture and traditions as it were he had a long time to be able to tell them about the gospel to have them centered around the gospel and and get a good picture of what corporate unity looks like what corporate worship looks like and as he wrote this letter um, you'll see in places where he said oh you guys have gone off track or you'll see in other places well actually I commend you in this and this is one of those situations where Paul actually commends them and he adds a little addendum after the commendation and says uh, good job but just remember this is how you ought to meet together now when you read from chapter 11 through to 14 you'll actually notice that this section in the letter is all about public worship it's about propriety in worship how to interact with one another how to glorify God in your worship and maintain unity in a place where there's a bunch of diversity people with different opinions different backgrounds um, different places in the classes that were there and somehow the spirit is drawing them all into one brotherhood and one identity in Christ so this is what I believe Paul is doing here is he's trying to create unity and propriety and, and worship so let's read this together starting in verse 2 he says this now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold fast to the traditions just as I delivered them to you but I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of the woman and God is the head of Christ. Every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since that is one and the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman doesn't cover her head she should have her hair cut off. But if it's a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her head be covered. A man should not cover his head, because he is the image and glory of God. So too, woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Neither was the man created for the sake of the woman, but woman for the sake of man. This is why a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, and man is not independent of woman. Just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman, and all things come from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him, 
but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to argue about this, we have no other custom, nor do the churches of God. God's word. So there's a bunch to unpack. And I will admit, this is a passage where people get bent out of shape all the time. One, because there's cultural implications that kind of fly in the face to us. But we have to acknowledge that the spirit of the passage is eternal. God has something in it to teach us about our posture, even about our dress, and how we should conduct ourselves. Because we have people watching. We have people that come into our assemblies, just as at the time of the Corinthian church, there were pagans that would come visit, there were Jews that would come visit, and Paul wanted to maintain order and honor in the assembly. So, before we get into exegeting the passage, I want to look at a few things just to consider. Um, as I said earlier, we've been going through chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through Corinthians, and there's a bunch of themes that come up. And I want to make sure that when we read chapter 11, those themes are present so that we don't read it in isolation because there's a lot of important things going on. So I might ask a couple questions as we go here, but let's just give a quick, a quick overview of some of the preceding chapters and some of the concepts that Paul talked about. So number one, the Corinthian church had a problem with factions. At the very beginning of the letter, it says, chapter one, that according to Chloe's people, so someone from Chloe's people either wrote a letter or went to Paul, according to Chloe's people, there are rivalries and factions among you. So already we know that within the Corinthian church, that local assembly, there was this group here, this group here, this group here, and they were competing with one another, judging one another, and there was disunity. So that was a problem. And Paul says the problem was because of their pride. They had a pride in worldly wisdom, in themselves, in their culture. Paul says in that chapter that the Greeks, they look for wisdom, the Jews for signs, and that oftentimes we think that we're wise, but we're called to be humble and consider ourselves as unwise so that we can be wise in Christ. In fact, when he went to Corinth, he said, I wish that there was, I, sorry, not I wish, I came to you preaching nothing but Christ and him crucified. So he wanted them to be central on the cross and Jesus and in humility. He came, it says, in much fear, um, in much trembling, and in much weakness. So Paul didn't come as one of those faction leaders to say, come follow me, so that people would say, I belong to Paul. He came preaching Christ crucified and turning people to the cross. What was happening was other men were saying, come follow me. And people were saying, well, I'm of Cephas or I'm of Apollos or I'm of whoever, right? And that was wrong. It was destroying the unity of the body. Later on, chapter two and three, Paul says, you will remain immature if you keep looking to fleshly leaders as belonging to them, as being part of that. Okay? So that's, that's one thing that we see early on in the letter that Paul is wrestling with. One of the things that he does is he talks about humility. And the whole purpose of, purpose of it is to um, teach them the meaning of the saying, nothing beyond what is written. And the purpose is that none of them will become arrogant, favoring one person over another. For who makes you so superior? 
What do you have that you didn't receive? So again, you see this posture of humility that's needed, that we all receive the gospel. The truth of God's word doesn't come from us personally. It comes through Christ, our head, right? We come to Christ, he gracefully gives us the truth, regenerates us through the spirit, and we are all those who receive. So we we can't say that my salvation has come because of myself or that I'm wise because of myself. It's because of the spirit. Um, And that's part of chapter three as well. It's the spirit that teaches, um, not man. Moving on, another issue you see, you see sexual immorality in the church. So much so that Paul rebukes him and says, even the Gentiles don't celebrate what you're celebrating. He says, clean yourself up, right? If there's things happening, sexual immorality is like um, leaven in the lump. It spreads to the whole thing. So you need to be righteous and vigilant and cut it out of the group, right? So propriety and how they were to interact with one another, very important, right? Chapter six, they were easily offended because they were self-righteous and self-motivated. If someone mildly offended them, they would take it to court and court in the public sphere, right? So there would be these places where there'd be markets or whatever, and Christians would go up to the judgment seat, which is a public place, and they would, you know, um, hurl claims at one another over menial issues. The, The text says that they weren't even big things. And Paul says, this is shameful. So again, They were dishonoring Christ through their immaturity and their self-righteousness and their being easily offended. Paul says, don't be so prideful. That's a a big problem was pride. And then again, he moves on. He says, glorify God in your spirit. Chapter seven. So here we are moving again into um, more specific relationships with marriage. Paul does something really neat. He takes male and female, husband and wife, and he gives them equal standing in the marriage. So this is actually contrary and countercultural, right? Typically in a Greco-Roman worldview, the male of the family would have sexual rights over his wife and concubines or whatever else. And he could impose his will on her. Um, the other, other way around wasn't the case, right? Paul says, actually, no, in Christ, the man's body is not his own, it's the wife's. And the wife's body is not her own, it's the husband's. So there's this beautiful picture of mutuality. And as you go on further on in the chapter, um, Adam really taught well and I thought, he shows that it's both the right of the man and the woman towards each other and conjugal rights, as well as things like divorce, right? If you have a woman who is a Christian and her husband leaves um, because he's a pagan, she's free. And the same thing if Uh, a woman leaves a husband, he's free. And so they give each other equal rights in that. And then we go on from there, uh, warnings about Israel's past um, and not being prideful and being vigilant again. Um, And finally, the chapter before where we are now is all about liberty um, in culture. So Forrest talked about how in the culture you could go down, you could buy meat. Now within Jewish people and Christians and pagans, there was all these different views on eating meat sacrificed to idols. For the Christian, we know that an idol isn't anything in the world, right? There's only one God. So if we eat meat and give thanks to God, we shouldn't have 
a guilty conscience. However, if we're there eating meat and it's been sacrificed to an idol, which we know is no thing, but there is another person whose conscience is, uh, you know, triggered by that, we ought to not eat meat because we want to make sure that their consciences are clear before God and we want to keep unity in the body. So we see all throughout, all throughout this letter, it's all about submitting yourself. So you have a right to eat meat sacrificed to idols. But you don't have a right if it causes someone else to stumble. If you remember back in chapter 9, Paul says, I became all things to all people in order that I might win some. He said, I became a slave to everyone. So Paul the Apostle, the one who gave the gospel to the Corinthians, said, I am going to subordinate myself to other people in order that the gospel may reach them. Okay? So keep this idea of submitting to others for their sake, this idea of being willing to subordinate yourself and to seek unity and honor in the group when we go through this now, okay? Because this isn't just uh, a bare canvas about you have to wear a hat if you're a woman in church. There's actual meaning behind it. There's social convention in it and there's also a spiritual application that will help us as we move forward even if our cultural conventions change, which they have. We don't talk about meat sacrificed to idols today because it's not really an issue for us in Canada. But for them, it was. Head coverings, we'll see, um, were very, very common, uh, both in the public square as well in uh, like religious liturgy, whether it was pagan or uh, Jewish. So with that, let's get to the passage. So, order and decency when they're gathered together. If we go to the end of this, this little section, Paul says, uh, but everything is to be done decently and, and in order when he, when he finishes this whole discourse in chapter 14. So I believe this is all about decency and order. So starting in verse 1, or verse 2, sorry. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold fast to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Now I want to ask a question. So when you guys think of traditions, do you think of them in a positive light as something concrete or something that is fickle and mundane? I think they're, like I think of them as really positive. Okay. So positive. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so this is the thing. There are probably, well, interpretations of this passage are a dime a dozen. You can pick up any number of commentaries. Everybody's going to have a slight twist on what they think the passage means. Um, but it really boils down to four different stances. The first stance is that it's inapplicable because they think it's just tradition of the first century. I think that the scriptures actually preclude that. Um, that's within the context of this passage, as well as other places when you look at the word usage of tradition. So Paul, when he uses tradition, it's almost always talking about him handing down the gospel. So doing the Lord's Supper, that was part of the tradition that he handed down to them. The tradition of the gospel 
was something that he handed down to them. Um, same Greek words are used, uh, let's look for example in 2 Thessalonians. And it's just a word comparison to show that it's, it's not something of little consequence that can be dismissed. So, Paul, always, when he's in, in Thessalonica, um, he writes a letter back to them to encourage them to continue on with what he taught them. And when you're in chapter 2, he says, uh, let me see, Second Thessalonians 2.15. So, he says, So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught, whether by what we said or what we wrote. And going on into chapter 3, verse 6. Now we commend you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from every brother or sister who is idle and does not live according to the tradition received from us. So I think the spirit of this passage is not just a tradition that we ought to let go of, but we need to consider it and not dismiss it, even though it may make us uncomfortable at first blush. Okay? You remember me in everything and hold fast to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Verse 3. This is a reminder. But I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. So, he starts off by saying, I praise you because you remember the tradition, and he re-emphasizes it again. But I want you to know, okay? I was with you for a year and a half. I laid this down. But remember... So maybe after a while, you know, these divisions started. Chloe told them this, this had happened, this had happened. Maybe there was something going on where new converts had come or new people had come in and the tradition of head coverings, whatever this means, which we'll find out, um, was being put to the wayside. And Paul's reminding them. He says, you're doing good, but just remember, Christ is the head of man, man is head of woman, God is head of Christ. Do you notice quickly that he says Christ is the head of every man? We don't get to be autonomous in the body. Christ is the head of Darren. Christ is the head of Ron. Christ is the head of Isaac. None of us here can stand up and say to the other, I am your head. Even though I'm teaching today, I'm not your head. Christ is. Whatever I say, you have to go back and reckon to the Lord and see if it's so, right? It's good that there's giftings of teaching and apostleship and all that, but in the end, Christ is the head of all. That also makes us all brothers. We are all brothers. This is an important point that's going to come out in the uh, section about men not covering their heads. So, unity. Also, the man is the head of the woman. So we have this interconnectedness. Christ is the source and head of man. Likewise, there is this uh, chain that woman is part of. Women are connected to Christ because he is the head of man. Ergo, as Christ is the head of her, she also falls under the head of Christ. And Paul ties it all together and says, we are all one in God. So for a pagan coming in, they're going to see the connection between God the Father as the head, the Christian God. Christ is the visible representative that both men and women fall under. Adam, I, I think too when, when the world looks at submission, they look at it very differently than 
Well, submission is not inferiority, right? Christ submitted to the Father to do his will and everything, and yet the Father exalted Christ's name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord, right? So our submission, we're, we're lots of other places, Philippians, for example, we're called to submit to one another. So submission in the perspective of Christ is a good thing. In fact, it's necessary for us to be like Christ. We have to submit. So this idea of subordination is not a bad thing. It's a good thing because it produces the unity and nurture that God wants, right? When we break this, when we break this chain of submission, the, the church falls apart. When man doesn't submit to Christ, he becomes a beast. When, when women rebel against their husband, rebel against the created order, we get rabid feminism and that destroys families, it destroys gender identity. We live in a time when the identity of men and women is being completely erased and jumbled up, right? So we wanna, we wanna keep this order that God has created because it's a good order and it creates th thriving. Of course. So Paul's solution, just reminding them, humble yourselves and abandon the need to be perceived as wise in the world. Recognize our interconnectedness in Christ. We already have it all in Christ together. So acknowledge the order that God made things in. Chapter 4. Or sorry, um, verse 4. <laughs> Every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head. So without any context in the passage, we have to ask ourselves, what does that mean? Why, why would it be that if a man prays with a covered head or prophesies with a covered head, that it dishonors Christ, his head, or himself? Why would that be? And as Forrest talked about, we have to let the scriptures interpret the scriptures. So we want to rule out some things, and we want to put some things in perspective. So number one, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, as the writer of Hebrews says, is a shadow of the things to come. The tabernacle, the priestly garments, they were all images of the reality that was in heaven that foreshadow Christ. So, in the Old Testament, who was the mediator between the people of God, Israel, and God? The priest was, or the priestly class, right? So you had the Levites, and you had the high priest. Let's go back to uh, let's go back to the Old Testament for a minute. Let's read what what, what they were to wear. So we're going to go to Exodus uh, chapter twenty-eight, and we're just going to read a, a couple short passages in twenty-eight and in. Uh, 29. I've got the mic up here, so I'm gonna I'm gonna read from it. So when we're at in Exodus chapter uh, 28, we're gonna go to verses 39 and 40. It reads this: You are to weave the tunic from fine linen and make a turban of fine linen, and make an embroidered sash. Make tunic sashes 
and headbands for Aaron's sons to give them glory and beauty. Notice the language. The priest who was to represent the people before God, they were to wear a head covering. They had a turban and a headband. Chapter 29, verses 4 to 9. Bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance to the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then take the garments and cloth, Aaron with the tunic, the robe for the ephod, the ephod itself, and the breastpiece. Fasten the ephod with him, on him with its woven waistband. Put the turban on his head and place the holy diadem on the turban. Take the anointing oil, pour it on his head and anoint him. You must also bring his sons and clothe them with the tunics. And they go on and they do their work. So we see something very interesting here. In the Old Testament, God commanded a specific special head covering for the representative of God's people to go in and make sacrifices and act as mediator. But Paul says something different in 1 Corinthians 11. So we have to reconcile why would Paul say something different at that time in the Corinthian church when God had already said that for the priests it was actually good for them to be covered when they go in. Remember how earlier I said that, that Jesus is the substance and the priestly garments and the priestly class were a shadow? They were standing in a future place of Christ or in the past as we read it, right? So who is our one mediator now? It's, it's Jesus, right? Jesus is our high priest. He's the one that we give glory and honor. He is our perpetual mediator. So he stands before God at all times as the one who makes intercession for us. Now let's jump to the New Testament. There's a bunch of other references if you guys want to even Google it where there's, where's places where, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're wearing head coverings when they go into the furnace. Um, Ezekiel, there's other times where there's people with head coverings um, in the presence of God, and it's, it's all good. Um, however, let's go to Matthew. And this is how Jesus puts himself as head, and he calls us to posture ourselves in worship. Let's go to Matthew, uh, I believe it's chapter 3, or 23 rather. So Jesus is going to denounce the religious hypocrites. So we're in Matthew chapter 23. And the whole chapter is basically about Jesus um, admonishing and encouraging his disciples to not act like the religious hypocrites. Okay. Um, before that, there's talk about who's going to be the greatest in heaven and the greatest in the kingdom rather. And he's, he tells them, be servants of one another. Right? Just like I am serving you. So, chapter 23, verses 1 to 12. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and his disciples. The scribes and the Pharisees are seated in the chair of Moses. Therefore, do whatever they tell you and observe it. But don't do what they do, because they don't practice what they preach or teach. They tie up heavy loads that are hard to carry and put them on people's shoulders, but they themselves aren't willing to lift a finger to move them. They do everything to be seen by others. They enlarge their phylacteries and lengthen their tassels. They love the place of honor at banquets, the front seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called rabbi by people. But you're not to be called rabbi, 
because you have one teacher. You are all brothers and sisters. Do not call anyone earth your father because you have one father who is in heaven. You are not to be called instructors either because you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be the servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. beginning of the passage we read that every man has a head who is Christ every man we're not independent of one another Christ presides over all of us and Christ says that those who are hypocrites like to dress themselves up take the head seat at banquets be seen by others in the streets they enlarge their tassels so like the priestly garments they'd have tassels at the sides and they'd have these, they're called phylacteries, but they're these little leather boxes that would hold scripture. And they'd tie them to their arms, and they'd also tie one to their forehead, right? And the people who wanted attention, they would make them bigger and bigger, right? And they'd have prayer shawls and stuff. So, that is how the Jews would see head coverings, specifically within the priestly class. Now, if we move on to Greco-Roman culture, there's no evidence in the Bible, per se, of what they did for head coverings. But if you do some searching, what you'll see is that um, in paintings, in literature, it's almost uniform, not completely, but there's kind of a monolithic trend that those who were in positions of power and privilege and prestige, uh, whether they're in the temple, like pagan temples, or in positions of politics, they would operate with a head covering during worship or during uh, any kind of uh, pomp and circumstance, okay? So we see two examples where a head covering denotes privilege and position in the group. What was the first problem that Paul was dealing with in the Corinthian church? Pride, when someone says, I belong to Cephas, I belong to Apollos, right? So if you're a Jew, new convert that sees another person come up in the, in the assembly, let's say, that's all of us together, we're at the assembly, and <clears throat> when you're a Jew or you are uh, a new Christian convert, your past would inform you culturally that it would be the special person, the intermediary that would cover their head and pray. So if I come into the group and I put on a silly hat, let's say, and start praying, and have my faction with me, that's gonna make everything worse. But if we take away the status symbol of leadership and circumstance, which was the head covering, what that does is it keeps Christ in his place as head, and it removes a stumbling block to people chasing after leaders, let's say. So that, that is how I understand the dishonoring of the head, and Paul saying that you shouldn't cover your head when you come to worship as a man. Now, moving on. So verse five, just gonna have to go back here. And after, after we're done, we'll have discussion too, because obviously there's gonna be lots of questions and, and perspectives. So every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head. Again, 
This is not about just being out and about. This is in the assembly, praying or prophesying in uh, the public. Okay. Five, every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since that is one and the same as having her head shaved. I'm going to bring six in here too. For if a woman doesn't cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her head be covered. Unity in the brethren, maintaining that we're all brothers and sisters, Christ is our head, equality. And then you get to the passage where it says, woman, when she prays uncovered, she dishonors her head. Again, Paul doesn't say why, he just says that it does. From the reading that I did, the reason for it was to preserve the honor of the woman and to preserve the honor of the men in the group and the husbands. So again, this is where things get a little dicey and you see variants of opinion on commentaries, okay? So generally speaking, women in the first century in Greco-Roman cultures wore head coverings when they were out and about. Jewish women almost always did, okay? The reason for it was propriety, fidelity, self-control, modesty, all those things. When a woman was married, she'd be out and she would cover her head to show that she was taken and that would, you know, guard against the idea of her being promiscuous or a prostitute or some of those things. Um, when they were at home, uh, practicing their, their pagan rituals, sometimes it was accepted that women wouldn't cover their heads. So again, Paul says, I'm going to become all things to all people in order to win some. Right before chapter 11, he says, um, give no offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in, in everything, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of many so that may, they may be saved. So, if you come into the assembly and you are a conservative Jewish Christian or a conservative um, Greek Christian and there's a woman there that is uncovered, automatically there's going to be a conscious issue, either for that person or the other. Whether she's submitting to her husband or not, um, it's going to look bad, right? So. Basically, the whole argument of this passage, I believe, is that head coverings are a symbol that don't necessarily translate uh, completely perfectly to our day and age, but there ought to be something in our groups that show that men are not trying to take authority individually over the group, and that women are acting with modesty and propriety, both in respecting that men and women are joined together and that men in their reputation preserve the reputation of Christ so that we ought not to um, uh, hurt the reputation of our men, that's how we dress, um, and that we need to find things in our groups that help to promote that type of posture. If you already wear a head covering, that's totally fine and you're completely free to do it, um, although I would say that 
Paul here is making sure that it's not uh, a prohibition for women to not cover their heads at all times. It's just when you're in the assembly praying and prophesying. Another note, the implicit uh, teaching there is that women were praying and prophesying in public. And the head covering was a symbol of authority for them to do that, which also gave them the posture of um, submitting to one another. So again, this is a good thing. Um, again, reading through uh, different commentaries and history on the culture, we know that they had an issue with sexual immorality. And a woman with an uncovered head, typically she would have an uncovered head because she was a prostitute, or she was a woman of ill repute who had had her head shaved off, her hair shaved off because she had been caught out in adultery or something like that. So her covering her head in the congregation would also save her dignity because sometimes what happens is things go wrong in the community and there's a reputation that follows. And when that person comes into the community, we want to do what they can, what we can as they've come to Christ to build them up and honor them. And a head covering in this culture would have helped them to, to uh, uh, stay away from that shame, essentially, right? So it helps preserve their honor. Um, and also, uh, if you were a, a man that was single, you know, women having their head covered would, would guard against the sexual immorality and, and whatnot. So again, we dress modestly to avoid sexual immorality. It's very similar. It means uh, a, a similar, uh, has a similar purpose. Let's see. Uh, moving on. Verse 7. A man should not cover his head because he is the image and glory of God. So too, woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Neither was the man created for the sake of the woman, but woman for the sake of man. And this is why a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. I read, I read them all together simply because... Um, Paul shows the interconnectedness of, of men and women and that men came first and man is the image and glory of God so you ought not to cover that up so whatever is masculine should be overt and shown and the woman and her covering shows the submission of God's given authority to the man to stay in line with that authority However, she gets a symbol of authority on her head so that man and woman together can take dominion. Remember, in their culture, men and women had different rights. Women didn't have the same conjugal rights as men. They didn't have the same social rights. The head covering put them in a place in the congregation that gave them a place to speak and have authority to pray and prophesy, yet at the same time, it gave them a posture of humility. So it was not an imbalance of reputation in the group. Verse 10. This is why a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Who here has ever been perplexed by that? I'm still perplexed by that, even after studying for the last few weeks trying to figure it out. There's a couple different uh, interpretations of that. Uh, 
One would be that uh, angels, angelos from the Greek, doesn't necessarily mean heavenly angels, but messengers. So one interpretation is that when people would come from other areas, whether other churches or from the world, and would visit in the congregation as they met to fellowship, um, this orderly worship uh, should be done so that outsiders wouldn't see the shame that was present when women uncovered or men covered. Right? That's one interpretation. Another is that it's for the holy angels. Uh, in many places, even in this book, Paul talks about how in his witness as an apostle, um, he was a witness to the world. He was a witness also of the good angels. So they watched his persecution and they watched his ministry. So, so also when we gather, God's holy angels who are orderly and preserve the creation order, observe us. So we should maintain that order so that they see it um, in, in a, a good report. And then the third interpretation is basically um, looking at Genesis and the account of the Nephilim. So we know from Jude and in Genesis, the evil angels, let's say, left their first estate and took out of themselves fleshly wives, right? And the idea of the symbol of authority and covering beauty was to guard against that particular thing happening again. Um, you can do with it what you please, but I'm not, I'm not sure exactly where to, to land on it. I lean towards more of the heavenly angel interpretation that it's just about order and we're in the view of, of the angels, so we should be orderly and, and in unity, right? And we don't want to do things that, that break that unity. Um, verse 11. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, and man is not independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman, and all things come from God. Just again, I want to stress that we are not independent from one another. In the body of Christ, men and women are not two separate classes or categories of uh, creation, let's say. We all have rights as heirs. We all image Christ. We all inherit the Spirit. We all are given gifts as the Spirit disperses for His purpose. Right? Man was created first. Women came, woman came through man. But now, women give birth to man. Right? Men are necessary. Women are necessary. And all come from God. So we have the creation order established again. Paul says, God first, Christ man, woman, we want to preserve that unit in our worship. Moving on to verse 13. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to argue about this, we have no other custom nor do the churches of God. So Paul's final remarks is to basically call them on common sense. Right now, common sense has left the building, right? Uh, a man can, <laughs> can wear a bra and cut his, you know, have a long haircut and put on makeup and female clothes and say, I'm a woman, right? Paul says, doesn't nature tell you that's shameful, right? We, we need to, to hang on to that. We need to hang on to the fact that even in the law, God said it was an abomination for men and women to act in 
their opposite gender roles. A man should dress like a man, a woman should dress like a woman. Because it's good to be a man and it's good to be a woman. It's God's design. Right? So Paul appeals to our our natural inclination to say, okay, well, if we're together, we know that if a man has long hair and is effeminate, it's shameful. In the same way, if a woman's able to have long hair, that is a glory. It's a good thing. It's beauty. Right? Women are meant to be beautiful. They're meant to be mothers, all those things. And that is the glory of, of mankind. Right? One of the other interpretations for this verse is that long hair is given as the covering rather than just some type of covering. Um, I think that may pass in some ways. However, a woman can't just all of a sudden put on long hair. Right? So that's why I tend to think that we need to be able to look at social cues, whether it's a scarf or a head covering, not just fashion, but the idea of humility that should set us apart and not just long hair, because there's women that want to keep short hair that aren't necessarily rebellious, but they can, when they go to pray or prophesy in the group, put something on that, sub- that shows that they're submitting to the group, submitting to the authority of Christ, to their husband, to the other man to create unity, right? So that's why I would tend away from that interpretation. And finally, one other nail in the coffin of saying that this passage is for 2,000 years ago and not the churches now is he says, if anyone wants to argue about this, we have no other custom, nor do the churches of God. So other churches were following this, even though we don't have other evidence in the epistles. Paul says, this is a practice in the other churches. This is a tradition that I handed down to you. So live in a way that reflects this subordinate attitude towards one another, towards Christ, towards our men, and our honoring our women, etc., etc. So that's what I found in the passage. I hope that you can kind of put it together and um, have some conviction so that when you come to church, you know that as a man, you're not trying to jockey for position over other men um, by dressing up or doing things that would put attention on you. And that you as a woman, when you come to church, you're coming in an attitude that respects the creation order that God gave, but that also he's privileged with you or privileged you with um, a way to participate. And that is through showing submission with a head covering or some, some cultural token, let's say, that says, God has given me authority to pray and prophesy, but I'm doing it with an attitude of submission to the group. And I think that's what Paul is asking. He's, he's telling them to keep this practice as we move forward. And, you know, I'm happy because our church, we don't, we don't have those issues, at least not yet. You know, one of the worst things is when someone stands up and is contentious and is prideful. Right? And whether they're wearing a head covering or not. I mean, a woman can be wearing a head covering and be very contentious. That's not the point. The head covering is supposed to show the attitude. So now let me pray and then um, I'm going to open it up to questions because I'm sure there's perspectives and things that may want to be asked. Father, thank you that you call us to unity, that there is order in creation, that there is beauty and glory in creation in the order that you made things, that we're called to honor one another and respect one another, that you give us ways in order to do that and that at the end of the day 
in Christ and in God, we are not disconnected, but we're all unified. We are one brotherhood. We all have value. And uh, you call us to be uh, a fruit-producing, loving, kind, and mutually submissive group to one another. So let's pray that that attitude would be in our hearts as we leave today. And that uh, when we come to places in the scriptures where we disagree, we would be able to uh, converse with them, uh, converse about them with uh, care, with humility, and deference to one another, seeking the truth always in love. In Jesus' name, amen. So, any thoughts? Any 